Hey, what's up everyone? It is Pastor Marcus here from the storychurchproject.com. Welcome to the Story Church Project podcast where our focus is how to redesign the local Adventist church to tell its story loud to a culture that is no longer listening. I hope that you're blessed by what you hear and that it inspires you to make a difference in your local church today. Hello everybody, it is Marcus here. Today, I'm tackling a conversation that is on the consciousness of every Adventist the world around, at least those who are in tune with the going-ons um, in our church today. And, and I want to talk about this whole annual council thing and this whole compliance document thing. Like, what in the world is going on with all of that? And how do we make sense of it as Adventists? Now, you guys know that generally speaking, my page and my podcast, like, I don't usually talk about anything going on outside the local church because I just focus so much on the local church. But I really believe that this thing here has a lot of relevance. And, and I think that there's some themes here that are really worth discussing but part of what makes me so excited about this is that i am actually joined by the host of nelsonsblog.com pastor nelson fernandez all the way from florida what's up nelson how's it going guys good to see you marcos oh uh, yeah man look uh for those who are listening they're not aware that you and i have known each other for a while this is the first time we actually speak and i hear your voice um but we go way back to the haystack days man that is correct. Yes, fellow writers on the haystack, the part of the original, part of the original team, I think. Yeah, original Writing. team with uh, I think Keith and Sam and um, right and 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 Jeff Jeff Tartarchuk. Like, yeah, we were we were like part of the original gang, and the haystack's doing great these days. But you and I are sort of working on some different projects, and I just want to thank you for uh, taking the time to have this extremely meaningful discussion today because i really am excited to hear your thoughts on this whole uh debacle uh but before we do that before we do that uh is a really big topic to discuss um but just for our listeners can you tell us a little bit about the legend of nelson fernandez <laughs> there's no legend it's just it's, it's just short um i'm no one special i'm just uh i'm serving right now as a pastor for outreach um, at Miami Temple, uh, Seventh Adventist Church here in sunny Miami, Florida. Um, I uh, worked as a pastor in the Carolina Conference for five and a half years before this, and um, my my first year or second year ministry there, I was was basically in over my head with a lot of work, um, basically running two churches. Um, I've never had never done that before, so I decided to start a little blog to just write my thoughts um, on different topics and. Since then, I realized that uh, my thoughts had resonated with a lot of people, a lot of pastors, um, and a lot of members across the world. And so I've, you know, I connected with you, Marcos, and that's how I got to know you actually through my brother EJ. That's um, right. Yeah. So yeah, so we we connected with the Haystack, and um, I've just been been intentional about writing and producing materials that that have tried to help the local church um, as well as um, the global church worldwide. Um, working here with the Southern Union. For a few years, with uh, making their uh, evangelism conference um, EC3, as we call it here, um, step down from that because now we're expecting a, a little girl, um, having a baby with my wife soon. The second child, we have the first uh, firstborn little boy, and uh, we just got a lot going on in our place right now. But I'm still very passionate about 
helping uh, the local church uh, to reach reach the world in in meaningful ways. And uh, I'm always always have my ear to the ground about what's happening in the in the church as well as the going ons in uh, the rest of the denomination. So here I am, just just another guy trying to do his thing. Well, look, uh, I appreciate you coming on here, man. Because and we'll talk about this a little bit more later. Uh, for those of you who've never been to nelsonsblog.com, check it out, guys. This dude can write, and the stuff he says is like, I love the way you write, man. Every time you publish a new article, I'm like, yes, another Nelson blog. Because <laughs> uh, they're really insightful. Like, seriously, uh, I'm not just, you know, like buttering you up or anything. They're really insightful. Um, I love them. They're, they're really well thought out, really well researched, um, really bold, which is something that we need. And uh, and really relevant. Like you always seem to hit the the topics that you know people are really feeling. So thank you, man. Thank you for using your gifts and and for letting God um, lead you, man. Now I usually do a much longer introduction for my podcast, uh, but this is actually this is a bonus episode because um, uh, I I've only just recently started publishing two interviews a month. But with this whole annual council thing that went down, I've just seen so much activity online that I, I just, you know, I couldn't ignore it. I had to, I had to, you know, do an episode on it. And so uh, I'd been following you on Twitter and seeing your thoughts and, and on, on that topic. And so I thought, hey, I've been wanting to get you on the podcast for a while because you do some awesome work in your local church. Um, so this was a, just a great opportunity to reach out and say, let's do this, man. Let's have this conversation about what in the world is going on uh, with Definitely. all this stuff. So, <laughs> so, so let's right. dive in, man, because... Um, I don't know if you were lit, like actually present at annual council. I know you followed it very closely. Were, were you actually there? No, I, I'm I'm actually a Twitter delegate, so I was keeping up on on Twitter as well as checking out the live feed. Um, most of the obviously Saturday and Friday were very busy at my church, but I kept up with Sunday. And uh, as of recording right now, I think annual council is still going on. That's right. Um, but we are. We've been. I've been looking at it through through the distance of uh, the reports that have come in for via Twitter as well as, um, you know, the, the live streams. And and one of the things that I noticed is that as you were commenting on the different going ons in annual council, as usual, um, you were looking at them through this lens of how we as a church body. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of how we connect with people who are not even Adventists. Because that always seems to be something that's on your consciousness is our relevance to the culture at large, our relevance to our youth, and and how we can be better at that. And um, and so I wanted to, to take this opportunity to look at three themes, just three themes from Annual Council, um, and get your, just get your thoughts on it. And um, thoughts on what was going on, what was going through your head, and, and how those things impact our mission in the local church from your perspective mm -hmm. as we as we try, you know, as we work to reach, especially the secular sort of post everything content. I call them the post everything now because it's, it's like post-Christian, post-church, yeah, post, yeah, yeah, you know, they just post everything. Um, <laughs> so I want to talk about three things because there's three things that I saw sort of floating around on, on, on the internet and a lot of people were interacting. And number one was the whole costume thing. All right. And talk about that. Mm. Um, number two was obviously the compliance document and, and just so your thoughts on that. And, and lastly, I want to bring it back to the local church and say, you know, what does this mean for us in our practical everyday ministry to the hurting, to the suffering, to this, uh, post secular post church society. 
Um, so let's start right. with that first one. Let's start with that one. Um, there was a lot of emotion surrounding the costume, you know, like uh, for those who are listening who are not aware, a lot of the delegates dressed up like Adventists from the 1800s for this. Yeah, um, period attire. So, yes, yeah. So I want to hand it over to you and just get your thoughts and then, you know, I'll bounce some of my thoughts, but I want to I want to hear sort of your perspective on it. Yeah, so I think a lot of this came from um, from what I understand, uh, even the Spring Council, where they knew that the this event was going to take place in Battle Creek, obviously a very historic site for Adventists. Um, we, we have a lot of connections with Battle Creek. Um, and one of the ideas from Spring Council was to have um, the gentleman that could wear, to, that could grow beards, because we know that there's some gentlemen that can't grow beards. Yeah. Um, to have I'm one beards, of them. I'm one of them, bro. Yeah, yeah. So you're you're out of compliance right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so fully fledged delegates are men, and they can wear beards. Um, so the idea is those that can wear beards to have beards, um, because uh, it was just as a way to harken back to our our history, um, just kind of reminding ourselves in a very different um, contemporary way uh, the 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 paths of the pioneers and trying to put ourselves in the shoes of uh, the pioneers via, you know, dressing up and having our, our hairstyles like them. And so that's where it kind of came from. Um, and so Elder Wilson asked uh, everyone that could to could be a part of it to be a part of it. So I saw over the months uh, people that I know that had never grown beards in their life. I'm like, when did this guy start being a hipster? Uh, even, <laughs> even, even Elder yes. Wilson grew his beard. I'm like, hey, he looks... He looks pretty good with a beard. Yeah, he, he actually, I actually thought, you know what? I actually thought his beard was pretty lit, bro. I, I, I gotta <laughs> hand it to him. He has a, he has a very, very formidable, very good beard. He has a great beard. The guy looks like the uh, Captain Obvious, right now, but in a good way. And, and actually, he, he did have on the captain's hat recently because he was, he had that, that inflatable plane. But that's right, yeah. You know, but he had a very good, a good beard, and so. Um, that's where uh, the idea came from, but you know, it seems to have taken on a, a weird kind of twist uh, over the weekend when people are meeting because you know here we are um, a bunch of Adventist leaders from the World Church uh, meeting in Bering Springs wearing period attire from the 1800s. Uh, there's a lot of people that say that our church is already out, out of touch and outdated in the way that we do things and our methodologies and the way we do outreach and different things, and so it's almost as if we're reinforcing that narrative. That our mm. um, our heydays was in were, was in the past. Um, sure, in on one level we want to look back and not forget our past, but um, I I think part of it, as we we mentioned kind of off air, that some of it may come from a narrative of you know in some people's circles we need to go back to what's called historic Adventism, where um, you know at some point in the past Adventism was you know, was where it needed to be. And at mm. some point, um, not sure where, we kind of went astray. Uh, Might have been when people started wearing pants to church or when we introduced questions on doctrine or when we decided to, I don't know, like pick your pick your number of, of, of pet issues. Um, but at some point, things went wrong. And what we need to do now is to go back to what was good back then in the historic Adventist sense. Yeah, and, so sort uh, of like this this golden era idea that there was a time where we were great 
And to borrow from the current political climate, we need to make Adventism great again. <laughs> right. right uh, by going right, back right. to this golden era. It's sort right. of sort exactly. of the vibe. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of what's going on. And um, I guess it meant, you know, the, the costumes, the period retirement, different things for different people. I was thinking, I'm like, oh, okay, maybe they're it's it's October, so they obviously not going to celebrate Halloween, but there's <laughs> maybe just like a little thing that they're doing just to kind of dress up, and and I'm okay with that as long as we don't have to grow beards for the 2020 annual council or for 2020 <laughs> general conference session. As long as I don't have to go dressed up in that, I'm okay. <laughs> there oh, was even classic, there man. were even some delegates that were. This was interesting, Marcos. There was this guy I saw on Sunday that he grew half a beard, like literally half a beard. So he had wow. half of his beard. Um, in a beard, half his face in a beard, and the other half was like cleanly shaven. I think that was some sort of a, a statement for something we'll talk about later on. Okay, all right. <laughs> yeah, I would love to. <laughs> I had no idea that I had. I, yeah, I can't wait for you to circle back around to that. Um, all right, so yeah, look, um, from I'm in Western Australia. I'm really far removed from this stuff. And to be honest, like no one in my churches is even talking about this stuff. I, I think most people yeah. are so far removed from it that it's just not really on our consciousness here. Probably a bit more in the U.S. Um, although, obviously, I'm not saying yeah, that people actually, in Australia. No, not <clears throat> not um, so much in my church either. Not a lot of not people so much. know about this. Okay. Okay. So it's probably more the you know those who are you know more interested or directly affected by the decisions or interested in sort of the meta narrative of Adventism who are are really keeping an eye on this. And um, yeah. and look, I, I have no idea. Like I, obviously, I don't think there's anything wrong with dressing up and you know celebrating a, a past era. I know people had different takes on that and don't really have time to dive into it on this particular episode. Sure. But I did see a lot of. Um, sort of complaints about the colonial dress and, you know, African-Americans at that time were slaves and it sort of was a trigger for that, um, which I think is, is a relevant point. Um, unfortunately, we, you know, like I said, we don't have time to dive into that particular angle. But I agree with you. I think for me, the sense that people are getting and, and the sense that a lot of the complaints that I'm seeing is that while for the people who thought of this, it may have just been, you know, hey, just a neat, fun thing to do. And I know there's a historical site there in Battle Creek where people dress up like this all the time and do tours. Um, but for sort of an onlooking millennial audience, it was just interpreted as just another reason why we're so out of touch. And, right. yeah. you know, it's like. I mean, it's, you know, it's one thing to look at our past and it's another thing to say there was this golden era and if we could just get back to that. And I, and I think at least the reason why I react to that is because I meet people like that all the time and I'm trying so hard to get people out of that mindset. And then when you see this sort of thing happening, you almost feel like, ah, oh, you know, <laughs> I'm trying to get right. people to look forward and be innovative and creative. Um, and then you sort of feel like you get sort of, yeah, you get pulled back. Although I would right. argue, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Um, I would argue that, um, it's, you know, like I'm all for looking at our past. What I'm not for is looking at a particular era in our past as though it was a golden era. But I feel like if we truly did look at our past and we truly did celebrate our past and, and created a, you know, decided to create a legacy, continue with the legacy of our past history as a church, I feel like we would be radically innovative because that's what our pioneers really were. 
So, so rather than look into the past as, oh, here's this golden era that we should seek to replicate, it's looking to the past as, well, here is a spirit that we should seek to replicate in our modern mm. context, this spirit of innovation and radical creativity and, you know, just, I don't know, like the pioneers did some crazy stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, you're, like, you're absolutely right. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Sh share with me your, your thoughts on that. Cause I feel like that we can, it's not emulating the era, it's emulating the spirit. Right. I, and I think you're right on that, Marcos, because if you think about it, you know, when could we pinpoint uh, a time when Adventism was great? You know, was it was it in the 50s when we had segregated institutions? Oh, wait, no, we still have that. Was it in the early 20th century when we were, um, uh, you know, still we didn't have our, all of our theology um, the way we have it now? Was it in the 19th century where, you know, our, our pioneers were still eating uh, shrimp in some cases? Right. Um, what, when was this ideal era? And, and, the, and if we look back into it, you realize that humans are humans. There's no perfect era because God, in his mercy, he works with us where we are. He grows us. But I really like what something Ty Gibson said on, on Twitter. He said, you know, there's an irony in the fact that beards and the tire of the pioneers made them hip and present to their contemporary culture. And so in our efforts to be like them, we're actually being unlike them, you know, mm. to really – to really be like them, we would need to be hip and present in our contemporary culture. One yeah. thing that I, I remember hearing, not hearing about, I wrote about this a while back, was that um, for Adventism, I don't know if it's the case in Australia, but here in North America, um, most recently I can think of the 50s as being the time when Adventism was really in vogue and was in contact with, um, with, with, with basically connecting the Adventist message in very culturally culturally relevant ways. Hmm. If you think about the felt boards that we use every Sabbath morning for the children's um, children's room, I don't know if it's the same way where you're where you're on the, in your part of the woods, but look at the attire that the people are dressed in. Look at the hairstyle that the men and the women are dressed in. A lot of it is very is 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 harkening back to the period which they were created in the 50s and the mm -hmm. 60s and the and the and the culture. Uh, the cultural, you could say, uh, expression that was prevalent at the time. Same thing with the way that we describe, the way that people painted, um, like uh, pictures like the Second Coming. Um, you know, uh, thinking about these 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 Nathan Green esque pictures from back in the day. Although Nathan has done a lot of good contemporary stuff now. In the past, when we just when we looked at the Second Coming, the way that people were dressed was in styles of like the 50s. Um, very trimmed hair and the, the 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 just the look of it, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But the way that the the pioneers did it back then, and the same thing that what what I think made the Adventism very very connected in the 50s was the fact that they were able to take the timeless message of the gospel and apply it in very culturally appropriate ways according to where they were at. And I think that's the that's the biggest the biggest need today as well for any church that wants to be relevant in its context. It's not about you know selling out. It's about recognizing that there are certain timeless principles that we we have as as a as a as a body of believers, and how can we connect that timeless message of, of the gospel um, in ways that the culture that we're ministering in understands. Absolutely. And and Absolutely. that's what I think made Adventism bloom from just these group of people in New England to now worldwide church uh, with lots of different ways of expressing themselves and worshiping all over the world. Um, yeah. We are. We are huge. We're everywhere in the world, and we can't say that about another denomination. Well, few other denominations. Yeah, that's um, right, man. But I think that this is this is something that makes us unique, and it's been the fact that what unites us as a church 
as a movement really um, isn't the way that we express ourselves. It's the the beliefs that we hold um, as 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 a group. Yeah, absolutely, man. Now, as you're as you're sharing all this, it 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 sort of brings up this question for me that I really think um, hits the local context because I'm always thinking the local church. I'm always thinking the local context, you know, like because for me that's where it happens. You know, GC and Union, that's all important. We need those things. But where it happens, where, where the gospel actually moves is in the local church. And mm-hmm. and so I have a question for you. Now, this, this might be slightly controversial. Um, oh, who am I kidding? It's probably very controversial. Um, <laughs> um, I, I don't mean to bring it up in a, in a pejorative sense, but I do think it's worth at least exploring. Um, okay. And that is the, the question of, do you feel that there is a sense in which, at least in 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 the Western world or or in in the majority of the Western world in Adventism, that there is this sort of vibe or mentality that uh, true, holy, pure, authentic, Orthodox Adventism uh, is synonymous with being a good european from like the 1900s does that make sense yeah no i i see what you're saying um it's important to understand that our church was born out of um anglo-americans mostly in the northeast part of the united states in the 19th century who themselves actually came out of different denominations that came out of um also Western Europe and different areas. Just the way Christianity itself has evolved over time. Um, you know, after after the fall of the Roman Empire and, you know, the if you look at just the way that the, the, the trend went, um, Christianity during much of its, uh, its era was a European um, religion, although it had obviously um, connections all over the world through missionaries and whatnot. Its main centers of influence were primarily in Europe. Think of the Reformation, think of the Vatican and everything. There was there was really only one church for about 1,500 years, and that was mostly centralized in Europe. But um, we forget that the, 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 the religion itself, the, the belief system of Christianity itself, emerged from Judaism. And yeah. Judaism itself is, a, is an Eastern, Eastern group. Um, but the way that we've We've, we've adopted it now, the expression is, is really Western Europe uh, over the last f- several centuries. And so I'll give you one example. Um, our current hymnal, um, the Adventist hymnal that we have, um, there's about, what, over 500 songs or so. And if we look at just the way that the hymns were uh, kind of brought to different parts of the world, um, most of the composers uh, are still of a... Uh, of a, of a European uh, background, um, at least I can think of at least my my Spanish. I, I pastored two churches before. One was an English church, one was a Spanish church. Um, we had an update to the hymnal a few years ago, which is pretty controversial to a lot of Spanish speakers because it was no, we had to have the original hymns. They changed the numbers and they changed this and that. But before that, we had a, a hymnal over 500 hymns, and only one of those hymns was written by a Latin-born composer. Mm. Only one. And that was a very popular one called Masaya del, del Sol, Far Beyond the Sun, which is composed by a Mexican-born gentleman. Mm. And so think about that. In, in, in a hymnal, 
sung by Spanish people, 99% of them were written by white guys. No yeah. offense to white people, yeah. but the idea that uh, an Anglo-Saxon influence work is, you know, the only way that you can um, really get any sort of uh, connection with the divine, it really betrays the conscience of Scripture. Um, Psalm 150 uh, has a lot of instruments that we don't use in our churches, like hymns, or excuse me, um, harps, lyres, cymbals, things of that nature. Mm. Um, it, it's, it's, it, it gets into another big discussion about cultural connectivity and cultural appropriation, cultural transmission, um, and how to connect that with the gospel. But I think what, we're, what, we, what we lose in trying to force people to hold one expression of faith, or excuse me, one expression of worship, um, and, and faith expression is that we limit God's ability to, um, to, to be present in different cultures. Um, and how does he express himself in different ways? Um, we've got to be very sensitive to the way God is already moving in different areas. And... Um, and I don't know. Yeah, that's that's. I don't have the full answer to that, but I do know. I see that there are there are different there there are some cases where we emphasize um, the expression of one faith without rec the expression of faith in one context without recognizing how we came to obtain that expressive uh, yeah. mode to begin with. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the reason why I asked it, because when I think of this sort of costume thing, and, and again, I'm not trying to put motives into the, you know, read motives into the, the, the people who planned it, but just Definitely. looking at it from the outside as a millennial, <clears throat> what it sort of hits me with is just almost a reaffirmation of this idea. And maybe it's because, not because of the costumes themselves, but because the costumes themselves are taking place within a context that I feel is already sort of suffocating us and, and forcing us to comply to this idea that to be a true, good, holy, righteous Seventh-day Adventist, you have to be a European first. You have to abandon your Puerto Ricanness and you have to abandon your Africanness because all of that is devil worship. You got to become a nice European, uh, not a modern European, but sort of like an 18, 1900s European. And if you do that first, then you can fit the checklist of what it means to be a good Adventist. And, and I feel like that really limits the kind of ministry that we do in the local church because when you have this mindset and look people don't think about it like that like i'm i'm <laughs> you know i'm i'm using yeah. words and stuff that people aren't running around saying it's 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 the way in which it sort of co comes across um but in my experience when you do that when you have this culture that says you have to be a european first before you can be an adventist that's basically what we're saying or like in 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 the book of acts you got to be a jew first before you can be a christian you know um, mm -hmm. when you have that sort of stringent cultural expectation, what it does is it makes our churches irrelevant to emerging generations whose value structure is totally different from Eurocentrism or, or, or Victorian, you know, ideologies. And, and what I notice a lot of local churches do is that then they, because they equate this Eurocentrism with holiness, they hunker down and they say, no, this is the only way to do it. This is what it means to be faithful to God. And then they just lose touch and they're okay with losing touch because in their heads, they're like, no, we're being faithful to the, you know, to what God wants. And it's like, you know, I'm all about being faithful to what God wants, but at the same time, we can't equate, 
you know, Adventism from the 1950s or from the 1800s or the way they dressed or the songs they sang or the culture that they expressed themselves through. We can't equate that with holiness uh, because the right. moment we do, we lose touch. We lose touch and I see it happening all the time. Um, and it's painful. It's right. painful to see. Yeah. Yeah. Take, take one example real quick. I'm just going to look at something um, Pastor Wilson said in his in the sermon on Sabbath, which was kind of controversial to some people that heard it, he said there may be those who um, overemphasize social issues while downplaying or neglecting biblical truth and its relevance for today's society. Yes, there are appropriate social issues we need to address, but always within the context of God's last day warning. And so to a lot of people um, of color, um, they saw that and they were like, hold on a second, the Adventist church did nothing during the apartheid. Hmm. They did nothing during the civil rights movement in the United States. And as a matter of fact, I know this because I, I, I spoke with someone who was a pastor at the time uh, of the, the March, uh, Dr. Dr. King's March on Washington, 1963. He was told by his conference that you know Adventists shouldn't be a part of that, and that if he went to this event, he would he could just find a new job. Basically, he'd be fired for this. Wow. And so the reason why we have integrated schools, the reason I'm allowed to marry a white person, is because. Um, there were some Adventists that stood up for biblical truth and its uh, its impact in its in its in its practical application through social issues. And so here's 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 where the, the issue came in. Like you have people dressing in period of tire during the time of like the Civil War. Consider that, right? Mm. Saying that we shouldn't connect with social issues. A big one was you know giving uh, people of color the right to vote and 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 just everything that comes with it. And basically saying what matters is not working on social issues, but on simply just getting people's minds into heaven. Um, that it just it just it, it just flies against um, the 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 life of Jesus. Jesus was very much in the milieu of the day, connected with people. And as a matter of fact, his biggest accusation was that he was a drunkard because he mm. had he just ate with sinners all the time. He wasn't really hanging out with the holy people. And that was the biggest accusation against him. And so, you know, when someone says, you know, well, for example, Elder Wilson mentioned another, don't succumb to worldly and charismatic influences that seem to be infiltrating the church services by filling people's mind with music that glorifies self rather than God. It's like, what what do we really mean by that? Um, there's there's just so much that we could discuss in this, but I I, I don't think that we have time for it in this podcast. Um, but we have to be aware of what we're saying and the impressions that we are, the, the image that we're trying to convey by, by what we say, because words matter. Um, and, and the way that we express ourselves and share impacts the way others, outsiders, view us. And the That's way right. even we ourselves think about ourselves. Mm -hmm. If we look at ourselves, ourselves as exclusive, like we're this last bastion of truth and we're trying to maintain the world at bay, we're doing the same thing that the early church that that the Jews did during Jesus' day. I just finished reading today uh, uh, a chapter on um, the Desire of Ages um, that talked about one of the bigger issues was that the early the, the Jewish community, in wanting to isolate themselves from the rest of the world, they were actually going against the mission that God had called them to do. That's right. And if the if the if the gospel is supposed to be given, a three angels message is supposed to be given to every kindred, tongue, tribe, and nation, then there needs to be some sort of influence that we will have on the world. And if we're so consumed, we're so concerned about not allowing worldly influence to come in, we're, we're basically trying to, we're, we're, we're speaking out of both sides of our mouth. We don't yeah. want to connect with people, but we want to connect with them. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? 
That's right. So yeah. it's just a disconnect in, in what we're trying to do and the message that we're trying to convey it in. Yeah, that's right, man. Oh, I couldn't have said it better myself. And look, I, I want to jump on to the to the other two topics before we run out of time. Yeah, let's go. Um, but but I, I did just want to make a, just one more comment on that because <clears throat> I grew up in, you know, uh, in church and people were always saying things like, you know, beware of the world coming into the church. And what they usually were talking about was um, emerging generations and cultures with diverse value structures um, not complying with the older generation's value structure. That's what they were, you know, my complicated way of <laughs> basically saying people were different and they were okay with sure. that. They didn't want to be the same. And so mm -hmm. what, you know, what people would say is, oh, the world's coming into the church, the world's coming into the church. And um, because people aren't dressing the way we dress when we used to, when we, you know, when we were young going to church or because people listen to music that we didn't listen to. Um, and it wasn't until I was much older that I realized that this whole idea of the world coming into the church is it's 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 really um, it's really a blindfold because when you look at it, the world has always been in the church and it's it, we just don't notice it. We, we only notice the things that we want to notice. Uh, and so, You're for right. example, and you alluded to this earlier um, and, and, you know, when when Willie White, uh, I think it was Willie. Um, or it might have been Edson actually, who was the pioneer of the of the work in reaching the blacks in the South after after the Civil War. Um, he was he was practically on his own. He he didn't have much support from the church at large. You know when when you That's run correct. into the um, when you when you come into the Jim Crow era, the the church and I'm talking the Adventist church practically mirrored the the policies of the Jim Crow era within the church. And and it's funny because when people talk about the world coming into the church, I'm like. It's been there for a long time. It's just we, we get caught up with, oh, you know, they're wearing pants instead of skirts. And uh, you know what I mean? Like we got caught up with this yeah. silly stuff and we miss the real issues. You know, like um, we had a, a, the way we you know, treated each other, the way we right. treat each other. Right. The level of the level of abuse in our church as compared to the world outside, the level of, you know, not only spousal abuse, but even even child abuse. Like these things are all prevalent and they're present and they're real. And yet we've got people running around, don't let the world in the church because of this instrument. And it's like, dude, <laughs> uh, you know, like it's so much bigger than that. And it's already there. And yeah, you know, it's it's a it's a big topic and we can definitely talk about it for much more. But I guess for me, I just want to be, you know, I don't know. I guess I just I just want to be I want us to be authentic enough to say, you know what, we're not this bastion of perfection uh, we're we're broken and we need grace and and we need mm -hmm. to extend grace as well. Um, and I think if we had that mentality, um, not only would we be, be more diverse, but we would we would be able to reach people because we wouldn't have this sort of you know idea that we're on some sort of hill that we have to defend. We we would realize totally. how, how broken we actually are. Yeah, look, let me let me jump on to the second question because um, we can go on about this for hours, bro. <laughs> totally. Um, and this one's yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Compliance document. Um, the compliance document was voted. It's a go. Um, share with me your thoughts on, on that. And look, for those who are perhaps unaware of what this is, uh, I don't want to give like sort of a historical explanation of it because it'll eat up too much time. Um, but I'll post a link with some articles under this uh, podcast episode and you can read them and catch up on the going ons. But for now, um, Nelson, tell us what you think about this vote. If you want, I can actually give you like a two-minute summary for people so, so they're not super lost. Cause I okay, boom, bro. If you, I forgot you're amazing. Okay. Go for it. No, no, sorry. Check it out. So to give a little bit of context, this is this is this goes back to 2015 where, when there was a multi-year study on the issue of ordination itself, right, on whether or not ordination should be a thing or not. 
Um, and so the, there was a Theology of Ordination Study Committee that was formed. And after a lot of time, they came up with three positions. Um, they couldn't come up with a united biblical position. They had a position that talked about, you know, the role of ordination, but nothing specifically when it came to the issue of women in women, the ordination of women to mm -hmm. to ministry. So in 2015, there was a vote taken, which was turned down, um, to, that would allow each uh, each territory to decide for itself whether or not to ordain women. And um, so some some entities in the church still continue to ordain them afterwards. And so you have an issue now where um, there are some parts of the church that are now going against the voted action or the voted decision of the church. Um, and, and I understand that point. Um, however, another point that's very important for our listeners to understand, and this is where a lot of the controversy, it seems like it, it's never ending. And this is why it, it doesn't, doesn't go away is because uh, again, after two years of study, the church didn't come to a unified position on the, 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 the theology of ordination of women. There were three positions, one that said that women cannot and should not be ordained, another one that said women can and should be ordained, and the third position, let's let each individual field determine the appropriateness of the matter because there's no unified biblical consensus. Hmm. So those are the three, the three areas. And so there are some uh, areas of the church that have continued on with the ordaining women, so the General Conference set up a unity oversight committee to try to bring these uh, non-compliant now areas of the church into uh, harmony with practice. And um, it hasn't been the case. So they came up with this, uh, this, this letter, that, which basically was voted on on Sunday. Uh, the, what is it? Today's date's the 16th, so it have been the 14th that basically outlines a series of um, disciplinary measures for the presidents of unions that um, aren't following suit. And this is where we're at today. So okay. um, <clears throat> my thoughts on this, man, are that it is a it, – it's complicated because this isn't a black and white issue. Um, you know, the, the, this issue is something that started a long time ago, but the issue is – not the issue. Um, there were several people that presented on Sunday that said <clears throat> the issue isn't just women's ordination, but what do you do when a body of believers decides to go against a, a vote, which I get, I understand. The difficult part for me to understand, Marcos, is that this is a issue of theology, uh, and there are parts of the world that, theologically speaking, feel that God has empowered women to minister to people um, in the ecclesiastic sense in, within the church. Yeah. Um, there are several that don't, but unlike, um, unlike scenarios in the past where the church has, you know, decided to wait until basically making a decision, we have, we basically decided theology through policy. So, yeah. you, you know, like, if you look at the general at the um, at the trend of church church history, right? Um, we talk about Catholicism being like you know fallen religion because we're we're sola scriptura, but we've now created a situation where we are now appealing to a council, literally a general conference session, to decide what we believe about women's ordination. Mm. We don't have a thus saith the Lord. We don't have a um, just like the early pioneers did, where they um, prayed about an issue, and if they, they had a disagreement, they would go back and pray and read for themselves. And this could take months. 
where they would come back until they had unity. Instead, we have a, a, a series of votes that have been very, very close, and we're saying that we, in essence, we're not allowing regions to decide for themselves what is best for them. Instead, for unity, you must really just step into the line with the rest of the church and not do as you want to do. And and this, this really becomes a difficult situation because um, for several reasons. One, um, the church already has a series of, 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 uh, of policies for how to deal with variants. And this was mentioned several times. And so what we have is a little more bureaucratic red tape on how to do with this. Two, as it was noted in annual council, there's about 80% of the church already out of compliance in one way, shape, or form from the way pastors are hired and the, the, the minimum requirements, specifically educational requirements they're supposed to have, to the way that um, that the church deals with finances in one way, shape, or form. I could give you multiple examples, but we don't have the time here. Um, we're out of compliance in different areas. And, and finally, the fact is that now we have a series of committees that have been set up at the General Conference that not only are going to look at um, if there is a perceived variance out of if, 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 if an entity is out of variance, but there'll be the jury, there'll be the judge, and there are also the appeals because there there's no one outside of them that can kind of hold them accountable if they are out of policy. Because mm. take let's take for example, like even though there were several people that mentioned that no, um, the, the 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 policy the, the way the policy is stated, it says that the next closest level of the church must be the one that will deal with. Um, the the perceived out of policy compliance, and and just so you know, originally when it came out, there were five different there were five different uh, committees that were presented that were going to basically monitor if the church was in compliance of different areas. It was one on general conference policies, two on doctrines and policies and statements and guidelines for the church organization and institutions, teaching certif teaching creation origins, three the doctrines and policy statements and guidelines regarding homosexuality four distinctive beliefs of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and five doctrines, policies, statements, and guidelines regarding issues of ordination committees. That's a mouthful. Mm. So we're, we we're going to have like these committees that are going to be overlooking the church and seeing if everyone was essentially abiding by policy, like basically policing whether or not what we say and what we do is in line with, with Adventist teaching. And it just, as a historian, it just has very, very... It harkens back to the Inquisition days where mm. if someone brought an accusation against someone else for teaching heresy, that there would be these councils set up that would investigate the orthodoxy or not of someone else. Yeah. And yeah. so that's uh, that's pretty concerning. Um, where was I going with this? <laughs> the point of this is that it was voted through, and um, what, it, what ends up happening is that um, – well, here's the thing. I, I, I totally understand, as I mentioned a few times, the, the 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 difficult situation of what to do when a part of the church goes out of compliance. But the issue is that, legally speaking, we have different levels of the church. Most people may not know this, but our church actually has four levels, um, not five. We have the local church. We have the local conference, which has its own policies, guidelines, we have the union, and then we have the general conference. Most people think that divisions of the church are another level, but in reality, they're not. Mm. They are extensions of the general conference. Um, 
they have to do the they, they, that um, uni, uh, divisions operate is under the authority of the general conference because, for example, you have your ordination credentials. Or I have my credentials. That's voted by the conference, but it's ratified through the union. So the union president is who's the one whose signature is given to you because it's an independent entity. Yeah. The general conference gives um, all of its workers, these are people that teach in institutions and their employees credentials, so they issue their own credentials. But um, they are they are in essence separate entities and Ellen White and the, some of the pioneers made this intentional back in the 1900s, early 20th century in order to provide kind of a checks and balances to the church. Yeah. But what's happened now is that um, looking at my te- my context in the North American division, like we have a president out west, Sandy Roberts, president of the Southeast California Conference. Um, she was voted in by her constituents in the California, Southeast California Conference, and that was ratified through the union. She has ordination credentials from the union. The next person on top of that is really the general conference. It's not the division because the division isn't actually – a, uh, its own independent entity. They are an extension of the general conference. Yeah. So yeah. if the division doesn't step in and, um, and do something about the matter, uh, what the document states is that they're going to use shame and um, public embarrassment, really, to shame people into compliance. Mm-hmm. And again, I just go back to the early church. And I go back to Jesus' ministry, and I look at what happened there. Like this was never, this wasn't a, this wasn't a thing, um, and so it's it's a, it's a little bit concerning because you know if you think about your own local church, if you have a very close issue that's contentious, <clears throat> and you vote it through, um, how do you maintain that sort of unity over a non-essential issue? It's like what if the 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 what if they made the church made a, a a decision that said all pastors have to kneel when they pray. What if they made a a, a policy that said um, women have to wear skirts that can reach no 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 uh, that can't be um, can't have to be at the knees or whatever, or everyone has to be vegetarian, or everyone has to, uh, or all churches have to have a drum set in their church, right? You wouldn't do this because there's different ways of viewing this, and we have Adventists that uh, that have drums in their church, um, that have long skirts or not long skirts, men that wear beards, men that don't wear beards, people that kneel, people that stand. But when you put into policy something that in its essence is a matter of conscience, you set the church up for division and mm-hmm. fracture, and that's the part that's concerning because – we're not really seeing eye to eye anymore. Those that are against women's ordination, and some people are using this as a as a time to bludgeon those who don't believe and say, you know, you just got to fall back into line. Like I actually just had someone send me something on Twitter today, where the guy was like, you know, it's my sincere hope that you lot will finally understand what that no means no. Move on already and be the witness you're called to be, not a rabble rouser. And then they put a little smiley face as if that made it better. <laughs> so. Yeah, and look, it's let me jump funny. let me jump in there real quick, man, because I actually just just posted something on Facebook um maybe an hour or two ago and um on that very thing because I hear that a lot. I hear so many people saying, "Dude, you guys, you know, the vote was no, get over it. The vote was no, get over it. The vote was no, get over it." And they mentioned like, you know, the church voted this back in the early 90s and it was no and they voted it again and it was no and and you guys are just like 
you just got to get over it because the answer is no and that's it and and why can't you just get over it why can't you just accept that it was voted no and that's the end of the story and just move on and um and i shared this quote from ellen white as a as a as a as an answer to that question look whether you agree with this issue or not is not my point like i'm not arguing whether women's ordination is right or wrong that's not my my angle here i'm just giving an answer to the question why aren't people just getting over this and the answer is very clear this is a ellen white manuscript 24 1892 she says this, the church may pass resolution upon resolution to put down mm -hmm. all disagreement of opinions, but we cannot force the mind and will and thus root out disagreement. These resolutions may conceal the discord, but they cannot quench it and establish perfect agreement. Uh, end yep. quote. And I think the real point here is that this inspired. issue. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. I think the reality here is that whether you agree with women's ordination or not, put that aside. We have to agree on one thing. Policies and votes are never, ever, ever going to resolve this. It's just yeah, not going to happen. We've got to find another way to move forward because this is just not, it's like you said, it's a matter of conscience. Um, it's not a matter of, you know, it's not a matter of doctrine. It's not like we've got unions saying we don't want to keep the Sabbath anymore. You know, it's, we're, right. we're talking about something that's not black and white. And so, It'll never be fixed with policies and votes. And and even if you look at the vote, it was 60-40. Like if my church had a vote at the board that was 60-40, I'd yeah. say, look, we need to reconvene because that's way too close. What well, you're just going to split we, is what's going to end up happening, you know? Totally. We've done the yeah. same thing at our church in Miami Temple. We've If something's been too close, we've decided to table it until – um, until further time because we know it's going to create a division and that's we know this at the local level so why do we feel that we need to ram an opinion through when again this is a non-essential issue that we did not find biblical consensus on mm. so it's not helpful to the mission that we're trying to do and it's not going to make it go away in anything it might exacerbate it yeah yeah, absolutely, man. Well, look, um, I want to ask one more question. Now, this episode, is we're at 49 minutes already. It's okay. Uh, oh, wow. I usually always stick to 45 minutes because uh, a lot of people who listen to this podcast are pastors and they don't have a lot of time. So stick to 45 just minutes, put, just, except for that one time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, except for that one time that uh, I interviewed Eddie Hippolyte and it went for like 50 minutes. <laughs> oh, so yeah. Eddie, if you're Eddie, listening Eddie to this, talk. bro. Eddie can talk. He's a, he's, he, a, he's a good guy. Oh, it was awesome. It was amazing. Yeah, but I usually am very stringent trying to keep it at 45. But I know this is this is sort of like a bonus episode. So I'm going to let it slide this one time because um, I got one more question that I want to hit uh, and then and then we can close. Um what would you say this means for the mission of the local church? Does it mean nothing? Is this just uh, just uh, something that's happening up there that we can ignore for the you know permanently? Uh, does it mean nothing at the moment? But eventually, it's gonna you know it might trickle down and cause some damage in our in our in our ministry and our outreach. Um, or yeah, just what what does it mean for the local level? It depends on if you're a man or a woman, if you're a male pastor or a female pastor. Um, as a male pastor, I know that for me, this isn't going to change the way that I do things. I, I know that I'm going to continue to be faithful. I'm not leaving the church. I'm in here for the long run. Um, you know, you don't, you don't leave just because something doesn't go your way, but I'm here for it for long run. I just keep on doing ministry and keep on doing mission for women. Um, it, it's, it's gotta be a devastating blow to them because it's almost as if their, um, their, their ministries aren't affirmed. 
you know, women women go to the seminary believing that God has called them into ministry. The general conference willingly takes that money, and and takes it. But then it says, no, you can't. You actually can't minister. Uh, you actually can't um, minister in the, in, a, in an area of the church that it believes you can minister in. And so, I think for them, there's going to be a lot of soul searching about what to do and how to move forward. Um, I know that the the North American division has um, united in expressing their affirmation of women in ministry. We have a lot of wonderful women, women who I count friends and colleagues in that, you know, are, are still here and they're working together. But as what the future holds, I, I don't know. Um, I do know that, you know, as Ellen White said, that this is, that the church is still the apple of God's eye, even though it's messed up. <clears throat> and it may look in the future, she says, as if about to, as if it's about to fall, but it will prevail. I don't know how prevailing looks like, but here's where the beautiful thing is, Marcos, is that if this is ultimately God's church, I have to stop fighting and let him be the one to take care of this. Mm. Because if this is God's church, then he'll fight for you. God always fights his battles, and he never loses. Um, just like the children at the Red Sea when they were being chased by Pharaoh's army, you know, the persecution was happening there, and, you know, God opened the Red Sea for them. And so the more we, the more we keep fighting over this, I think the less the less the less aware we are of the hand of God in maybe trying to create some sort of solution in this. Mm -hmm. So I would encourage all leaders uh, at the local level and, um, you know, even up the chain. I don't know how far up because the people that are going to be affected by this um, document are the union presidents. So they may be under censure if they allow uh, their union to keep on ordaining women. But if your local pastor keep on working, keep on writing, keep on influencing, keep on baptizing, keep on reaching people for the people, people keep on reaching people for Christ. Um, if you're on the other side of the of the debate on this, please get off of Twitter. <laughs> please get off of you know. Don't don't elicit a, a spirit of hey you know we're lording it over you haha ha, just move on because there are a lot of people that are hurting over this, and mm -hmm. I think God would have us focus more on on trying to build bridges rather than build walls. Yeah. So um, keep on keep on going forward and keep on doing the mission, knowing that God has called you. God, in many times, is the one that ordains people, even if institutions don't. Mm -hmm. Amen, bro. That's really inspiring, man. That's really inspiring. And, you know, I think um, one of the things that I've been thinking in light of all of this is that um, there is, regardless of all of these things that are going on, there is... A beautiful story that Adventists have been called to tell and you know I run into people all the time you know people who are hurting people who literally have nowhere left to go and um, they're oblivious to all of these things that are going and look I'm not saying they're not important especially for those who are most impacted by it so important my heart goes out my prayers are up man um, but I do you know I, I take your encouragement because I, I do believe that there is just a world out there um, who who doesn't even know God loves them, and uh, and we've been called to tell that story and um and and I appreciate your encouragement because at the end of the day some stuff we just gotta let God sort out and we have to keep on with the part that we can control which is telling this story loud um, to the culture and and bringing hope and meaning to to the lives of people who like I said are are don't have anywhere left to go in many in many cases um, definitely. Last question, man. Last question, and we're going to wrap up here. Um, if someone said, hey, this Nelson guy, he's pretty cool. I like him. 
Um, I would love to know more about him, read more of his stuff, get in touch with him. How can they do that? Uh, two ways. I'm on social media at um, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at uh, at Nelson Blogs, N-E-L-S-O-N-B-L-O-G-S, Nelson Blogs. You can also see me on my website. That's uh, Nelson's blog with an S this time, Nelson's blog. I, I had it Pastor Nelson's blog before, but people kept on confusing me for Dwight Nelson. <laughs> so I shortened it to – I have it nelsonsblog.com. Um, I post on there periodically um, about different issues, and, and you can find me there. And I'd uh, love to connect with you. Awesome, man. Awesome. So that is Nelson's blog, the website. And if they're looking you up on social media, it's Nelson Blogs. Um, <laughs> I'll put yeah, I'll no. put the uh, I'll put the links up under this as well. Uh, look, Nelson, thank you so much for hanging out with us, man. I really appreciated you taking the time and sharing these things. There's a, a lot to consider, a lot to pray about, and uh, I just want to thank you for taking the time, man. Um, out of your busy schedule, My pleasure, Marcos. Uh, at, at the last minute book, too, because I only messaged you like 24 hours ago. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh man, but look, I really God, appreciate it. Fresh. And um, for those of you who are listening, hey, look, thanks again for checking out another episode of the Story Church Project podcast. Um, I'll be here again next week. If you haven't had a chance yet, head over to thestorychurchproject.com. You can subscribe to the newsletter. I got a free course that I send you, which is all about how to optimize your local Adventist church. Some really basic, simple steps that I've learned from the the greatest gurus of church culture and church growth and uh, I've just managed to simplify it into seven really easy to follow videos. So go on there. It's free, guys. You can check it out. Uh, just subscribe and it comes straight to your inbox. Other than that, I will catch you next week. May God bless you as you seek to tell the story loud to this culture that surrounds us. Take care. Thank you for listening to this week's latest episode of the Story Church Project podcast. I hope you were blessed. If you haven't yet had a chance, I want to invite you to head over to thestorychurchproject.com and subscribe to the newsletter. Not only will you get the latest updates every week, but I'm also going to send you a free gift straight to your inbox. You don't want to miss it. I'll catch you on the next one.